You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Noelle Herhusky-Schneider. This is the WFHB Local News for Thursday, June 30th, 2022. Later in the program, we have an excerpt from the latest edition of Bring It On, Indiana's only weekly radio program committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. More in the bottom half of our program. Today, the Supreme Court voted to limit the EPA's ability to regulate carbon emissions. This blow to climate change mitigation efforts could lead to more air pollution and a warmer climate. WFHB correspondent Bodie Hoover shares some findings from a recent air purification study that individuals might be interested in learning more about in light of today's Supreme Court decision. Good afternoon. This is the State House Roundup for Thursday, June 30th. Indiana lawmakers pushed back the special session to discuss taxpayer refunds and abortion from July 6th to July 25th. This comes after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the 1973 landmark Roe v. Wade case, which now leaves the legality of abortion up to the states. Aaron Witter a spokesperson for the Indiana House Republicans, said in a statement, quote, In light of the historic Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade, legislative leaders are anticipating a multi-week special session versus one or two days. Due to this extended session and to minimize logistical issues, leaders worked with the governor to push the start date to July 25th, end quote. Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb has previously stated that he is pro-life, and he said the state will address the abortion issue in short order. He said in a statement, quote, we have an opportunity to make progress in protecting the sanctity of life, and that's exactly what we will do, end quote. Right now, abortion is still legal in Indiana. For more information about Planned Parenthood in Bloomington, call 317-205-8088 or visit plannedparenthood.org. Over a dozen new laws passed by the Indiana State House will go into effect on July 1st. Among these new policies, House Bill 1296 repealed the law requiring people to receive a license to carry a handgun in the state. All in all, this means people don't need a license or permit from the state of Indiana in order to have a handgun. Indiana State Police Superintendent Doug Carter had previously come out against the law, saying that it could make it hard for police to determine who is legally allowed to carry a gun. People barred from owning a handgun under the old law are still barred from owning a handgun under the new law. Lastly, a new law that bans transgender females from competing in girls' school sports will go into effect on July 1st. House Bill 1041 was authored by Representative Michelle Davis, a Republican who represents District 58. Late last month, the Indiana General Assembly overrode Governor Eric Holcomb's veto, effectively banning transgender girls from playing on girls' sports teams. Holcomb previously claimed the ban was unnecessary and expressed concern the policy would leave the state vulnerable to lawsuits. 
However, the House overrode the governor's veto with a 67 to 28 vote, while the Senate voted at 32 to 15 to overturn the governor's objection to the law. According to the Human Rights Campaign, an LGBTQ advocacy group, at least 18 states have introduced restrictions on transgender sports participation in recent years. During public comment at the Richland Bean Blossom School Board meeting on June 20th, a concerned parent asked the board to rewrite the policy regarding attendance during finals week. If my child needs to reschedule his finals for some reason, we have the capital and the privilege to back that up, to get those exams rescheduled. I'm not trying to sound elitist. I'm being honest about the reality of where we live in this country. Now think about the student who is from a single-parent home, free and reduced lunch, an IEP, lives in Section 8 housing, moved here from another country six weeks ago to escape persecution, and English is not their primary language. Does that student or family have the privilege or capital to advocate for their child for their exams to be done for a, during a family emergency? What is the practice that's in place to support these kids? How do they know that they can reach out and get an alternative testing time? Um, okay, last paragraph. It's my hope that you'll do what's right by our children. I do not agree with the policy the way it's written, but I believe that it sets children up for failure written to reflect a zero-tolerance policy. If you decide to approve the handbook the way it's written, fine. I urge you to give the directive to the RBB administrative team to go back to their teachers to engage in real conversation about their practices, what's best for kids, and develop a plan to support all students based on their specific needs. Assistant Superintendent Matt Irwin asked the board to approve changes to the 2022-2023 classified handbook. Irwin explained that it is a yearly renewal and that they work with Ferguson Law to ensure the handbook is current with the law and board policies. Board member Brad Tucker thanked Irwin for his work on the handbook and asked him how it would be shared with staff. Just, I just want to thank the, Mr. Irwin and the powers to be putting it together and getting everything updated in a clean, orderly fashion because it was kind of a little bit of a mess uh, prior to the last three years. So I appreciate all the time and effort you put into that to getting it updated. Yeah. Um, I assume this is all going to be communicated to the classified staff via the online portal. Erwin responded. Yeah, so it gets posted online and it's on our website. And then at the beginning of each year, we just have them sign an acknowledgement to say, hey, I've had an opportunity to look at look at the handbook. And again, we post it online on the website so that they're able to look at it. Again, it just outlines all of those things that they need to know about different benefits, different policies, different procedures. Um, in that case, hey, you're never going to remember all of that stuff right off the top of your head, and it's easy just to go back and, and take a look at it. Again, it did take a lot of time to put it together, and it's a lot more um, expansive than what the, the previous one was, um, but it obviously outlines a whole lot more than what was there, so it gives people uh, a better outline of what's, what the expectations are, what their benefits are, how to access that, or who to go to, and that sort of thing. So. Board President Dana Robert Kerr thanked Ferguson Law for their help reviewing the handbook and other contracts on the agenda. The board approved the handbook changes unanimously. The next meeting will be held on July 18th. At the June 21st Monroe County Plan Commission meeting, commissioners heard a petition for a performance bond release in a property on 3110 South Leonard Springs Road. Planner Drew Myers presented the case to the commission. Um, this one is the SIA 21-6 Mesca Storms Minor Subdivision. Um, it's a um, subdivision improvement agreement. Uh, essentially, the petitioner has applied to release the full performance bond amount 
that corresponds to the required construction of a cul-de-sac off of South Omaha Crossing Drive, which was part of the uh, subdivision process. Um, <clears throat> the next step is for the petitioner to apply to have the road accepted into the county inventory. Uh, the ordinance states that a two-year maintenance bond is required after the construction has been completed to the specifications laid out in the approved construction plans. Um, <clears throat> one item to note is that uh, the petitioner uh, would like the uh, cul-de-sac to not be included in the county inventory and not have to post the 10% uh, maintenance bond um, as well. <clears throat> so um, overall, um, basically the uh, planning staff is recommending release of the performance bond um, with the condition that all requirements under the stormwater report must first be met. Um, those conditions have been met. Um, we can see here on the screen a comment from the stormwater inspector. Uh, they performed an inspection today and determined that um, their comments had been addressed appropriately. Uh, if you'll note in your packet, there's a, uh, several items that are required for the release or reduction of performance bonds and financial guarantee uh, from Chapter 858-8. Um, and you'll note that each of those items um, that has reference to the specific exhibits in the packet that uh, clarify that those uh, conditions or those requirements have been met. Commissioner Jeff McKim asked if there was any reason the commission would not want to release the performance bond. Myers responded. Since all of the requirements of Chapter 858-8 um, are uh, satisfactory, um, planning staff recommends uh, releasing the performance bond uh, of, the, of the full amount. Um, there was some conversation with uh, the legal department about uh, the, the maintenance bond, uh, whether or not the planning commission had the authority to waive um, that requirement. Um, and um, County Attorney Dave can speak up more on that if you'd like to, but um, it was determined that they could um, request that it not be included in the inventory and then not have to post the 10% bond. The commission approved to release the performance bond back to the petitioner, voting 8 to 0. The Monroe County Plan Commission will meet again on July 19th. Once the CDC confirmed that COVID-19 was airborne, there was an increased demand for air filtration systems. Individuals and businesses sought to create a cleaner environment, but were faced with expensive equipment and product shortages. To address the mass shortage, a popular do-it-yourself strategy arose known as the Corsi Rosenthal Box. For the first time, this cheaper alternative was independently evaluated for its effectiveness. Standalone air filtration systems, also referred to as portable or in-room, typically use HEPA filters. The cost for these systems increases with the clean air delivery rate. The new DIY method uses four MERV-13 filters connected to a box fan to pull in air and filter out particles. The Corsi-Rosenthal box was originally proposed by Richard Corsi in 2020, and the first one was built with the help of Jim Rosenthal. It can be built for less than $50, which is inexpensive relative to other HEPA filtration systems. When operated at higher flow rates for longer durations, the lifetime of the box is estimated to be one to two months. In a study published in January 2022, researchers tested particle concentrations using three filter-based cleaners in two settings, a home office and a classroom. Both rooms were equipped with a Corsi-Rosenthal box and two HEPA filter-based air cleaners. By comparing concentrations of air particles when the air cleaners were on, off, and operating at varying flow rates, the effectiveness of each setup could be evaluated. Less than 30 minutes after being turned on, particle concentrations in the home office dropped to near zero. The Corsi-Rosenthal box achieved lower particle concentrations faster than the HEPA-based systems, even when operating at a low flow rate. 
The Corsi Rosenthal box costs 75% less per clean air delivery rate and reached more than double the clean air delivery rate of the HEPA filters. The sound level of the low flow rate Corsi Rosenthal box was comparable to the HEPA filters, but was higher at a medium and high flow rates. This difference is comparable to the difference between a household refrigerator and dishwasher. The Corsi Rosenthal box cost less than two cents per CADR, measured in cubic feet per minute compared to the commercially available in-room filters, ranging from 71 cents to $2.66 per clean air delivery rate. This study found the cost to range from $0.07 cents to $0.09 cents per CADR for the available Energy Star rated filters. Overall, the DIY Corsi Rosenthal box is a great alternative that can deliver clean air faster and cheaper than the HEPA filter-based air cleaners as long as you are okay with a little more sound. In today's feature report, we have an excerpt from Bring It On, Indiana's only weekly radio program committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. Bring It On airs each Monday at 6 p.m. on WFHB. This program is available online at WFHB.org or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Before we get underway, just want to let you know that the topic matter discussed is sensitive and may not be suitable for young listening audiences. Again, thanks for tuning in to Bring It On, and let's get underway. Good evening. I'm Liz Mitchell, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio show in our 17th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting them after African-American community. And good evening. I'm Clarence Boone. On August 7th, 1930, James Cameron Jr., Thomas Shipp, and Abram Smith were lynched in Marion, Indiana. Initially charged with robbery, murder, and rape, Shipp and Smith died. But miraculously, with the rope already around his neck, Cameron was saved. He was tried and convicted as an accessory to murder and spent five years in prison. In the 1940s, Cameron founded three chapters of the NAACP and later served as Indiana State Director of the Office of Civil Liberties. In 1988, he founded America's Black Holocaust Museum in Milwaukee. Data indicates that there have been 21 reported lynchings in Indiana's history, and Cameron is thought to be the only known survivor of a lynching attempt in the United States. Leon Bates is a PhD candidate in the Department of Pan-African Studies at the University of Louisville, Kentucky. He focuses on urban history, example, uh, education, housing, labor, medicine, policing, violence, and he also focuses on the intersection of race. Leon has conducted extensive research on racialized violence, in particularly, He is focused on lynchings in Indiana. He joins us now to discuss his findings. Leon, welcome to Bring It On. We're so glad to have you on this show. Thanks for having me. 
And Leon, I hope uh, I got the introduction correct in that PhD candidate, and or perhaps should I be saying Dr. Biggs? No, I'm not about to get back. I'm working to get to candidacy. I'm still a PhD student. Candidacy is my next step, which I hope to achieve in the next 12 months. All right. Um, What's for you? I'm going to just say in advance. Thank you, Dr. Biggs. All right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. As our description um, uh, depicted, it, this is a sobering conversation we're about to have, but it, you know, we, we don't shy away from hard discussions. And we talked about a gentleman who survived a lynching in, of all places, Marion, Indiana, and by all accounts was uh, noted to be the only survivor of a lynching. Uh, mm-hmm. And it makes you wonder, in, in 21 reported lynchings in Indiana's history, and he's the sole survivor. Now, uh, Leon, you have researched this. And if you would like to take a moment and maybe share with us how you became interested in such a topic. Oh, man, I'm not sure how I finally got to where I am now. But um, I am a uh, non-traditional college student, if you will. In other words, I had a life before I went back to college. I was a commercial industrial electrician. And then uh, when the economy got bad in 2007, I went to find something else to do. And I really started looking at policing in Indianapolis because the first African-American police officer killed in Indiana was killed in the alley behind where I live today in 1922. And that's kind of how all the research into violence and lynching and everything got started. And then when I really got into lynching, I guess it was probably at the, uh, the provocation of a professor who asked a question about it and told me that, you know, you need to know more about the lynching side you have quite a bit on the policing side. And I just started looking, asking questions. And of course, Ship and Smith that you mentioned earlier are probably the most uh, well-known in Indiana. That was in 1930, but there were um, somewhere between 12 and 18 before that. Uh, the numbers vary depending on who you talk to and what you are looking for. And uh, new people are being added to the list as people research different parts of the state. That's probably the best description of how I got to where I am with it now. And, and as a, not a disclaimer, but it is cited as 21 reported. Lynch. Yeah, 21 known reported. Known, exactly. reported. Known. And, yeah. and lynching as a form of um, psychological um, control, vigilante justice or mm-hmm. just keeping people in a certain mindset? All of the above. And you have to keep in mind that vigilante justice and lynching are two different concepts. Um, lynching is more spontaneous and it's usually just a emotional outburst by a crowd where vigilante justice is more uh, performative. It happens over a longer period of time. And there's this sense of the people in the crowd that what they are doing is correct and proper. And Smith and Ship are a good example of a uh, vigilante justice type thing because they have photographs of those people in the crowd who are clearly standing there looking into the camera with no fear, no shame. You know, They think they have done the right thing. Where lynching quite often can be something that's happened, the crowd emotionally goes into doing something they know it clearly is wrong but it's not thought out, it's not planned, it's just a spur of the moment type thing. Both are wrong and both are used typically by the majority population against a minority population 
as a form of, as you said, social control. Um, legality has little to do with it. It is the perceived, the perception that they're doing the right thing is what drives it. When you are researching these lynchings, are you re researching the lynching solely of, of African-Americans in Indiana or it doesn't matter, just whoever's getting lynched? It really doesn't matter. Uh, for example, there was a vigilante lynching in the 1850s in uh, the county north of Allen County as you're going across the Michigan state line. And I've forgotten that county name now, but long story short, that was a white man who was a, a victim of a vigilante type lynching where he was accused of stealing horses, stealing farm equipment over a long period of time. And they caught up with him, um, took him back to town, held him in a hotel, sent someone to get his wife and let him spend time with his wife. And then the next day, they took him to the town square and hung him on the town square. And there was a parade. Uh, I mean, the people who participated in the lynching, the active members lined up two by two on horses and paraded in front of this man who was forced to sit on a wagon, sit on his own coffin in a wagon and ride to the town square and was hanged. And everyone in town was there, everyone saw it. And the people who witnessed it did nothing to stop it and then did nothing about it after it was over with. And this was a white man they did it to. Mm -hmm. So I've researched both. Most of the ones that I've looked at have been African-American. In fact, most of the ones in the record, I believe, are African-American. The other probably well-known or best-known uh, whites that were lynched in Indiana would be the Reno brothers that were lynched um, outside of Seymour, Indiana. Um, I've forgotten now when that was. It was in the 1850s, 1860s, I believe. Um, there were four or five brothers who made a uh, career out of robbing banks and trains and so on and so forth. And the locals finally got tired of them. And eventually they were captured somewhere and being brought back to Seymour when the locals stopped the train, took them off the train, and they were hanged on the side of the road. And the Reno brothers were a group of white brothers born and bred in uh, Seymour, Indiana. Oh, they hung them right then and there. Yes, right on the side of the road. Did anybody have any remorse about the lynchings at all? Uh, uh, for the most part, there doesn't seem to be a lot of lynching, or excuse me, a lot of uh, remorse behind the lynching. What is interesting is over time, there seems to be a level of shame that communities seem to take on and it's not talked about. It's not, you know, uh, it's not in most of the local histories. You can find locals who know about it. And if you go into the libraries and you start digging into the old newspapers, you can find where they're often written about and written plainly about what happened. Sometimes they even describe who was involved in it. Uh, in the case of Abraham, or excuse me, of Ship and Smith, um, there was a lady in Marion by the name of Flossie Bailey, if I remember correctly, who was sending almost daily dispatches to the NAACP office, the main office in New York. And she was naming people that were involved. Um, she named the sheriff and the deputies who stood aside and let these people into the jail to take them out. Um, but no one, no one bothered to do anything. In your research, was there a lynching in downtown Indianapolis? Oh, yes. Um, and one thing I want to say before we get into that is we need to understand what lynching means. And lynching, most of the time, is thought of as taking a rope and hanging someone by the neck. But lynching can be flogging, beating, whipping. Uh, tar and feathering, any kind of torture like that, or the threat 
of doing something like this, which is anything up to and including actually killing someone. So with that said, there was a lynching in 1845 in downtown Indianapolis at Illinois and Washington Street. Um, people familiar with Indianapolis, I'm basically talking the northwest corner of Illinois and Washington today. That is where the Weber Grill and the Panera Bread are located in that large uh, Claypool Hotel building. Mm -hmm. And uh, the man's name was John Tucker. And Tucker was beaten in the, beaten to death in the middle of Illinois Street, just north of Washington, about two, three o'clock in the afternoon on July 4th, 1845. And there were somewhere close to 100 onlookers who watched it happen, but no one tried to stop it. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Herhusky Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Clarence Boone. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Noel Herhusky Schneider. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters WFHB wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for Big Talk, a one-on-one -on -one conversation with some of Bloomington's most fascinating people. Coming up next on WFHB. Listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 